Hello and welcome to the March 2017 episode of the LGBT Law Notes Podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me as always is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up this month, there have been several significant twists and turns in the Gavin Gim case. Uh, for the time being, still awaiting argument at the Supreme Court. Can you bring our listeners up to speed, Art? Okay, so this is the case where the Supreme Court granted cert last fall uh, to consider two questions uh, arising out of litigation in the Fourth Circuit over the refusal of a local school district to allow a transgender boy to use the boys' room at his high school. And uh, the district court had dismissed the Title IX claim and reserve judgment on an equal protection claim. Uh, the Fourth Circuit reversed that, holding it that they should have deferred to the position of the Obama administration, which had been submitted in connection with this case in a letter from the U.S. Department of Education. And uh, the Obama administration was taking the position that under Title IX, uh, schools that receive federal funding must allow transgender students to use the restroom consistent with their gender identity as they were living their gender identity. Uh, so in this case, uh, someone who was identified on their birth certificate as female but was living as a boy, uh, using a male name, dressing as a, and grooming as a man, wanting to be treated as, as a male, would be entitled to use the men's room. Uh, on remand, the district judge issued a preliminary injunction requiring the school board to allow Gavin Grimm to use uh, the boys' facilities, uh, and uh, the Fourth Circuit refused to stay that. The uh, Supreme Court agreed to stay it, uh, rather unusual because the Supreme Court, of course, had only eight members. Uh, clearly, the four conservative justices wanted to uh, stay it, uh, but you need five votes for a stay, and Justice Breyer, who otherwise would have voted with the other three Democratic appointees who indicated they wouldn't have granted the stay, he said he was voting to grant the stay as a courtesy without further explanation, but it was clear that the school board was going to file a cert petition, and it had its four votes to get a grant of cert. Uh, so uh, Justice Breyer, as a courtesy to his, his colleagues on the court, agreed to the stay. So they granted cert on two questions. Uh, one was uh, whether the informal letter from the Department of Education, which was not a formal adjudicatory ruling or a, a formal guideline or a formal regulation, could be the basis of such deferral under the Supreme Court's precedence on deferral to administrative interpretations of ambiguous regulations, which was the particular issue here. Uh, and secondly, whether the Education Department's interpretation of Title IX was correct. So they granted cert on those two questions. Now, on February 22nd, the Trump administration withdrew not only the letter that was sent in this case, but the guidance uh, in the form of a letter to all school districts in the country, which was sent out shortly after the Fourth Circuit's opinion. Uh, making their position more formal in that sense. They withdrew both of those. And in the letter in which they withdrew it, they didn't take a position as to what the correct interpretation of Title IX was. They said they, they felt that letter had not shown any specific analysis. Uh, 
uh, it had not uh, been adopted with sufficient formality, and they pointed to uh, conflicting lower court decisions on the question uh, and said there's need for more study. So we're not going to rely on the Obama administration's interpretation going forward, but they were not stating it was wrong or it was right. They were just stating that it was withdrawn. And simultaneously with uh, issuing that letter, which was a dear colleague letter to all school districts, uh, they sent a letter to the Supreme Court clerk asking the clerk to notify the justices that it had been withdrawn. Uh, the reaction of the court was to ask the parties to submit by March 1st their position on how the court should proceed because the case is scheduled for oral argument on March 28th. And uh, this was just a little over a month before the scheduled oral argument. Uh, so the parties have submitted their letters. Uh, not surprisingly, both parties want the court to decide what Title IX means in this context. Although this is a, a change from the ACLU's position in the fall when this was just applied when the school district well, asked for cert. They, they had opposed the, the grant of cert at yeah. that time uh, as uh, premature. After all, this was just, at this point, uh, the only rulings on the merit, ruling on the merits in the case was the original decision to dismiss the Title IX claim by the district court. The Fourth Circuit hadn't ruled on the merits. And uh, what prompted the cert petition was the issuance of a preliminary injunction. So the ACLU's position was it's too early in the case. There is no final decision to appeal from, and no harm is being done to anybody by allowing Gavin Grimm to use the men's room during his senior year in high school, basically. Uh, but once the cert petition was granted and given the filing of additional cases around the country on uh, the similar issue, uh, the ACLU took the position, now that we're here, let's do it. And I think part of the, uh, the thinking beyond that is let's do it while the court has its current membership. Uh, and, in fact, if we have a hearing on March 28th, it would be highly likely that Neil Gorsuch, if he was uh, confirmed by the Senate, would not take a seat in time to participate in this case. His hearings start on March 20th. Uh, yeah, his, his hearings start on March 20th. The Democrats have indicated this is not going to be a perfunctory hearing. It's going to stretch out for some period of time, and they may try to filibuster, and so then there'll have to be a vote on whether the uh, filibuster rule is set aside. Um, so that could take a little time to sort itself out. But in the meantime, we have a court which is, on the merits, probably split four to four. Possibly Justice Kennedy would side with the, uh, with the four Democrats and produce a five to three ruling, but we don't know. But the point is that with Gorsuch added to the court, they would absolutely have to get Kennedy for the Fourth Circuit to be affirmed. Without Gorsuch, the Fourth Circuit could be affirmed by a divided court without writing an opinion. Yeah. And uh, given the odds, it is likely that uh, Trump will have another appointment, at least one, during a four-year term, assuming he serves a full four-year term, which is something that people speculate about as well. Uh, but there are other aspects now. In, in both parties agreed that the court should still hold oral arguments and should, even if they find that the issue of deference to the Obama administration's letter is moot because the letter has been withdrawn by the Trump administration, well, the underlying question isn't moot of whether uh, the, the deferral process goes into play if the administration takes a position 
even in a, a letter issued in a particular case and not through some formal mechanism of adopting a regulation or publishing an official guidance of some sort. Uh, that's still a live question. In fact, a lot of people in the administrative law community have been watching this closely, especially in the environmental area. Uh, but they also they asked, asked for something else. Yeah. They said, look, we're talking about the interpretation of a federal statute. You should be soliciting the, the opinion or the position of the Solicitor General on behalf of the government, which is sort of interesting because in the February 22 letter, the government said, we don't have a position yet. And uh, the president's press secretary, when asked about this, said, well, we're thinking about it, and we might come up with a different interpretation of Title IX, but there's nothing to report yet. Uh, but the school board is saying you should ask the Solicitor General to submit the government's position, and then you should give both parties an opportunity to respond to that. And since that can't possibly all be done before March 28th, you should postpone the hearing. And to me, that shows that they're counting numbers too, and they're thinking it's in their interest to postpone this hearing long enough so that Gorsuch can participate. Because if Gorsuch participates, then they have a possibility of winning a five-to-four vote. So who knows? Very um, it's it's up to the court at this point, but it's it's interesting because uh, so far the only issue that's been addressed in the Gavin Grimm case is Title IX. The only issue before the court is Title IX statutory interpretation and these administrative law issues. But there's also a constitutional claim in that case, which uh, District Judge Domar didn't rule on. He reserved ruling on that. And in the meantime... We have another case we're reporting on in this issue of Law Notes, the Ivancho case, uh, out of the Western District of Pennsylvania. And in this case, the federal district judge, Mark Hornack, said, and, and ruling on a preliminary injunction request, very similar to the ruling, uh, the procedural posture in the Gavin Grimm case at that point, when uh, Judge Dumar rejected the Title IX claim and refused to issue the preliminary injunction and reserved... Uh, judgment on the equal protection claim. Judge Hornack says, look, the Title IX stuff is all up in the air right now. He says the, the Trump administration has withdrawn the letter and the subsequent guidance. Uh, they haven't uh, articulated a position. Other courts are going different ways on it. The Supreme Court stayed Judge Dumar's preliminary injunction in the Gavin Grimm case. I think based on all of that, there's no way I can find that plaintiffs have shown a likelihood of prevailing on the Title IX claim. Things are just too uncertain. But, he said, I also have a constitutional claim before me. And since I feel I can't really rule on the Title IX claim, I really should address whether the three transgender students who are being denied use of appropriate restrooms at the Pine Richland High School in western Pennsylvania, I should address their preliminary injunction motion on the constitutional claim. And uh, so he went ahead and did so. And he found that heightened scrutiny applied, uh, consistent with what the 11th Circuit did in, uh, in the uh, uh, Glenn case many years ago right now, several years ago, uh, and consistent with what some other district courts are saying about uh, gender identity discrimination. He said the Third Circuit hasn't issued a decision on this, and neither has the Supreme Court on what level of judicial review a gender identity discrimination claim gets. And he says, uh, taking the factors the Supreme Court looks at to decide what level of scrutiny in an equal protection case, he said, uh, gender identity clearly 
in his view, uh, satisfies the requirements for heightened scrutiny, which means that the government has to show that their challenge policy will substantially advance an important governmental interest. Now, he's willing to acknowledge, uh, and the school board says, this is about privacy. This is about privacy of all the students. Uh, and he's willing to acknowledge that there is an interest in privacy, but he says, given the facts in this case, I don't see how allowing these transgender students to use appropriate restrooms is going to cause any privacy problems because of the way the restrooms are designed. Uh, it seems that in this school district, the architects got it right for a change. They, uh, they designed both men's room and women's rooms that protect the privacy of individuals so their genitals will not be exposed to someone else unless they particularly want to go parading around in the common area unclothed. Uh, the urinals are divided. There are dividers between them for privacy. And, of course, in the, uh, the girls' restroom, the only toilet facilities are in enclosed stalls, which can be locked from the inside. Similarly, uh, the toilets in the men's room. So whether you're talking about a transgender boy using the boys' bathroom, uh, they're not going to use the urinal. Uh, they're going to go into one of those stalls. So, you know, they're concealed from view. Uh, people can't see them. Uh, they can't see other people using the restroom. And in the, in the women's room, all of those facilities are in enclosed so, so he said, privacy is preserved. Furthermore, this school district, they did something very smart when they designed the high school. They have a scattering of single-use restrooms all around the high school. Uh, so anyone, he says, whether they're transgender or not, anyone who seeks privacy for when they go into the bathroom should just go to one of those. Uh, and no one's privacy is being violated here. So he sees... No way in which the school district's uh, policy is advancing any substantial interest, any important interest. And he says, even if I were to decide this as a rational basis case, I would find they don't have any rational basis for this policy. And the school district's argument that they were doing this in response to uh, public concerns because parents had shown up uh, at school board meetings demanding this, uh, the judge said, we don't vote we don't have popular votes under the Equal Protection Clause. That's, that's decided as a matter of law. It was also important to the judge in this case that these transgender students had been using gender-appropriate restroom facilities for several years without any fuss being made at all. It was only when uh, a parent got wind of it from another student uh, that all of a sudden they organized a bunch of parents to go to a board meeting and complain and write to board members and stuff. Uh, so it, it was made an issue by the parents, not the students. The students are okay with this. It's the parents who are upset, and to what extent that's politically motivated and, and really has nothing to do with individual privacy concerns, uh, we can speculate about. But in any event, this judge issued a preliminary injunction. Uh, and uh, the interesting question whether the school board is going to seek a stay, uh, I doubt that the judge would would grant a stay. The grounds for doing it aren't there. Third Circuit might grant a stay, perhaps on the ground that the Gavin Grimm, Grimm case is pending, and uh, we should wait to see what the Supreme Court does before we start ordering school districts to do anything. It's, it's, it's somewhat reminiscent to the situation between the Windsor case and the Obergefell case when federal courts, lower federal courts, were ruling for marriage equality, and uh, after the Supreme Court stayed one of those cases, subsequently all of them got stayed 
until the Supreme Court decided that it wasn't going to hear them initially because they were all going in the same direction. There was no circuit split, and uh, there was no vote on them by four judge justices to bring it up, probably because they suspected that it was going to, the ones who were opposed to marriage equality strongly suspected the way Kennedy was going to go on it. So they were putting off bringing it up. And it, and it didn't come up until a uh, circuit court ruled against marriage equality. So, you know, looking at this situation, uh, it's it's really hard to speculate what the Supreme Court's going to do, but we're probably going to find out within a few days of making this conference. They have a conference tomorrow where you they know. could decide something. Tomorrow being March 3rd. Uh, we're, we're, we're recording this on March 2nd. So uh, interesting to watch. Yeah. And this will be a big deal case because it, it could have very strong implications for other areas of sex discrimination law. Uh, we have cases pending in several circuits on whether the prohibition of sex discrimination in Title VII extends to sexual orientation claims. Uh, depending how the court analyzes if they decide to take on the question of Title IX and gender identity would probably have implications for how they would analyze sexual orientation as well. Um, I'll just throw out there, too, the amicus briefs uh, are due today on for people who are on Gavin Grimm's sort of side of the case. And there's, uh, you know, we're seeing a similar, somewhat similar amicus strategy to what we saw in the marriage case. There's a corporate brief. Um, I saw it on the way here. Tildef has a voices of various, I think it's 99 different transgender people are represented in their brief, a very powerful stuff about the lived experience of transgender people. If if folks are interested, I'm sure there's going to be a, quite a bit of... Um, interesting briefs filed today that uh, will hopefully show a, a vast array of, of interests that are aligned to, to rule in favor of Gavin on this issue. But one brief that won't be filed today, uh, which the uh, ACLU was really hoping for, was a brief in support of Gavin's position by the Solicitor General. Uh, if they file anything, and I think they're too late to, to file a brief against. Right. Uh, I think all the briefs in support of the school board's position had to be on file already. Uh, because these are respondents' briefs here, yep. are, are responding to the uh, petitioner's arguments. Uh, but you know, if the solicitor general asked to be allowed to intervene and to file a brief, well, one question is, who is the solicitor general? Uh, Mr. Trump hasn't nominated There's an acting yet. one right now. There's an acting one, uh, and uh, one of the prime candidates who was being discussed uh, has made it very clear that he's not interested he says, I'm not going to go for any job that requires Senate confirmation because uh, he's, he's a partner in a Washington law firm who was nominated by George Bush for the D.C. Circuit and was stonewalled and ultimately uh, blocked by the Senate. Uh, this is Miguel Estrada. Yeah, Estrada. And he said, I'm not going to submit to any confirmation process in which I have to be civil to Senator Schumer, <laughs> yeah. who he blames as being the ringleader in defeating right. his nomination. So they've, they've still got to come up with somebody yeah. to nominate for Solicitor General. And then general. the Attorney General, it looks like he's going to be pretty distracted with other things to yeah. today. Yeah, at least Like today. Uh, perjury to the Senate. Well, that's... Possible perjury. Let's not go too far afield on the politics here. <laughs> Stick to the law. One other human interest thing I'll point out, in the Pennsylvania case we talked about, the lead plaintiff is the sister of a singer who spoke at the, the Trump inauguration. Sang. Yeah. Sang the Star Spangled Banner at the Trump. So um, it's another just interesting... It's a small world. It's a small world, and it just shows how many people, you know, transgender people are everywhere, and uh, 
hopefully that point is sort of getting across to the Supreme Court and Well, I think the, one of the important things about the Gavin Grimm case, regardless of how it ultimately is decided by the Supreme Court or by the lower courts, because I think it's just as likely that the court will remand it to the Fourth Circuit yeah. without making a decision uh, because things have changed and the Fourth Circuit has to reconsider its position. Uh, it's really, really pushed the conversation. Uh, it's, it's made it possible for people to talk about a lot of stuff that people just weren't talking about before. And that can only in the long term, I think, improve the prospects for equal civil rights for transgender people. Because uh, transgender people now, they're in the news, they're being quoted, they're being in the media, uh, they're being depicted in films. Uh, and that's, that's how we got to where we got our marriage equality with sexual orientation. It's, you know... The, the litigation and the legislative attempts and even the referenda that we lost, you know, it's, it, it seems to me all of that results in uh, raising social consciousness and making people more comfortable with the subject. And at some point, the public opinion tips, and it tipped decisively in favor of marriage equality. I think it's going to tip decisively in favor of transgender rights. All right. On that positive note, we will take a short break, and when we return, we'll talk about a unanimous ruling from the Washington Supreme Court rejecting a florist's First Amendment defense to a discrimination claim after she refused to provide flowers for a gay wedding. We are back discussing State of Washington versus Arlene's Flowers. A gay couple was shocked when a florist they had previously done business with informed them that she could not handle the flowers for their wedding. They later sued her under the Washington Law Against Discrimination that prohibits sexual orientation discrimination by public accommodations. How did the Washington Supreme Court treat her First Amendment defense, Art? Well, they treated her First Amendment defense with the respect it deserved. <laughs> that is, they applied precedent and rejected it. Uh, the, the situation here really harks back to the uh, Supreme Court's ruling uh, 25 years ago in Employment Division uh, versus Smith that the First Amendment does not give people a free-floating, self-determined religious exemption from complying with neutral state laws of general application. Uh, and Employment discrimination laws, well, this is a public accommodations discrimination law, discrimination laws in general are considered to be neutral with respect to religion, even though they might incidentally burden someone's uh, religious freedom. And uh, the court was willing to concede the point that uh, requiring a florist to provide flowers for a same-sex wedding to which she had religious objections does burden her free exercise of religion to some extent. But they said this isn't as a result of a state policy that is focused on religion or inspired by antipathy to religion or anything like that. Uh, this is a, just a general public accommodations law that says everybody is entitled to equal service regardless of their sexual orientation. Now, she had argued in this case, and uh, the name of the proprietor of Arlene's Flowers is Baronel Stutzman. I don't know where Arlene's comes into it. Maybe she bought the business from a prior florist. But uh, Baronel Stutzman argued, I don't discriminate based on sexual orientation. I'm not anti-gay. She says, I know these men. 
I've sold them flowers in the past. I'd be happy to sell them flowers in the future. I just have a religious problem with same-sex marriage. I believe, you know, that according to the Bible, marriage is between a man and a woman. Or actually, she, she said it's based on her relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what she, she told them. Although I'm unaware that Jesus Christ ever pronounced on this issue. But I'm not a biblical scholar, so there may be something hidden there in the New Testament somewhere on this. But uh, at any rate, uh, she says, I'm not discriminating against them because they're gay. This is about conduct. It's not about status. It's particular conduct for which I have religious uh, objections. And the court totally rejected that. They said, you know, this argument has been raised over and over again. It's very clear that it discriminates against gay people to refuse to provide goods or services in connection with a same-sex marriage. Uh, they're not going to recognize this distinction that uh, the appellant was arguing between status and conduct. So they affirm the lower court. They affirm the decision by the civil rights agency. Uh, I think there's a very substantial fine that was imposed in this case. And there was an immediate uh, announcement after the opinion came out by the Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, it's, you know, the same anti anti-gay group that litigates all these cases. Uh, they're going to file a cert petition with the Supreme Court. Now, the interesting thing is uh, they did a case in Colorado representing uh, a bakery that refused to do a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. And that one has been waiting, and they, they knocked on the Supreme Court's door last summer. They filed the cert petition before this term even began. Uh, the case has been listed. This is the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Uh, it's been listed for consideration, for discussion by the court, uh, I think at every conference they've had since the beginning of January. And at one point, they even asked the lower court to send up the record in the case, which indicates that they're pondering it. They, they haven't made up their minds. They, they, they can't get to four votes who want to grant cert yet. They wanted to see the whole record. Uh, so that cert petition is already there, and uh, it's even possible that tomorrow, March 3rd, at the next conference, that they could decide whether to grant cert. Uh, I think it'll take a while for this cert petition to be on file. Uh, usually, they, I think they have up to 60 days after the uh, final order is entered by the uh, state Supreme Court to uh, do the cert petition, and they could file a motion for re-argument or something first. But... Uh, it will be interesting if the court suddenly is confronted by multiple petitions presenting this issue. Uh, I pointed out in, in my article about the case in this issue of Law Notes that this is the fourth significant appellate decision on one aspect or another of this issue. We had the Elaine photography case from New Mexico, which the U.S. Supreme Court refused to review. Uh, we have this uh, bakery case from Colorado. We have a case involving a farm in upstate New York that was a venue for weddings, and the New York Appellate Division rejected their argument, uh, upheld a decision by the New York State Division of Human Rights that they violated the public accommodations law. And now we have this case. So far, it's pretty unanimous uh, in terms of same-sex marriages uh, and goods or services in connection with same-sex marriages. The courts in any state that forbids sexual orientation discrimination. We have to make that clear. So uh, we're only talking about, what, 22 states on public accommodations, maybe 21 states. Uh, but states involving a substantial portion of the country's population, because it includes many of the largest states, like uh, New York, California, Illinois. 
So uh, it will be interesting to see if the Supreme Court wants to get involved in this. It, it strikes me that if they're happy to rest on Employment Division versus Smith, they could just summarily affirm these cases and cite to that case. Uh, but uh, if this case were to be decided after Neil Gorsuch is a member of the court, I would think he would be strongly in favor of reviewing it because he has written in the past about the issue of allowing religious believers to avoid complicity with activities that violate their religious beliefs. And he's he was one of the judges involved at the lower court level in the Hobby Lobby case. Right. And uh, although the uh, Supreme Court in its Hobby Lobby decision by Justice Alito disavowed uh, giving people in discrimination cases a defense. Well, it was one sentence in the... And he only referred to race discrimination. Right. And Justice Ginsburg in her dissent specifically cited a public accommodations case involving sexual orientation as an example of the kinds of uh, cases that would be put into question by the Hobby Lobby decision. That involved a, a gymnasium, I believe, in, in Minnesota that was operated by Christian fundamentalists who didn't want gay men hanging out in the locker room. <laughs> so interesting how this is all playing out. Yes. All right. We will take another short break, and when we return, we'll move to another state Supreme Court uh, decision, but this time more bad news out of Arkansas. We are back discussing Project Fayetteville versus City of Fayetteville. In 2015, the City of Fayetteville had passed via both its City Council and a referendum an LGBT anti-discrimination ordinance, but earlier that year, the state legislature enacted uh, a uniformity statute pro prohibiting any municipality from expanding on the numerated bases uh, under state law, meaning, for all intents and purposes, you can't protect LGBT people locally. There was an interesting argument, however, made by the city to try to save its ordinance. Can you tell our listeners about it, Art? Yeah, this, well, this, this was not the first time that Fayetteville had considered uh, adding sexual orientation and gender identity to their non-discrimination ordinance. And there are a few other municipalities in Arkansas that have actually done it. Uh, and the legislature became uh, concerned. I think uh, some of it was uh, sort of copycat on what was happening in other places. The idea that, uh, at least this was articulated by the sponsors of what they called the Interstate Commerce Improvement Act. Talk about legislative euphemisms. Uh, they were going to improve interstate commerce by forbidding localities from introducing variations in anti-discrimination law from place to place. They said, uh, we don't want a patchwork of anti-discrimination law in Arkansas. We want uniformity. So localities can adopt whatever policies they want in terms of their own employment of local municipal workers or county workers. Now, we're fine with that if they want to prohibit themselves from discriminating based on sexual orientation, gender identity, or any other uh, characteristic that's not already covered by state law, they can do it, but they can't apply it to the private sector. They can't apply it outside of their own individual personnel uh, and public service uh, activities. Uh, so they passed this law called Act 137, and it specifically says uh, it prohibits local governments from adopting or enforcing, quote, an ordinance, resolution, rule, or policy 
that creates a protected classification or prohibits discrimination on a basis not contained in state law. Okay, so even though this thing had passed, uh, the city council in uh, Fayetteville decided to take another stab at it uh, because the previous they had previously passed such a law and there had been a referendum and it had been repealed. So they decided to go back to the well again. They thought that you know, further discussion in the town led them to believe that uh, this time it would be upheld. And in fact, they passed the law only provisionally, providing that it would have to survive a referendum vote. Uh, so the, the people who were opposed, who uh, called themselves uh, Project uh, Protect Fayetteville, uh, because after all, you know, if this thing passed, Fayetteville will be overrun by rapacious homosexuals and transsexuals who are going to out to, you know, convert their children. I don't know what, what they wanted to be protected from. Uh, but at any rate, they brought an action seeking to enjoin the referendum on the ground that under Act 137, it was, un, uh, it was illegal in Arkansas to pass such an ordinance. So there was no need for the referendum. Uh, but the local judge refused to enjoin the referendum. The referendum uh, this time approved the ordinance, and, pro and Protect Fayetteville was back in court saying that the ordinance is invalid under Act 137. The city came up with two arguments. Uh, one was a statutory interpretation argument. They said, we believe that under this statute, if we can find reference to sexual orientation or gender identity anywhere else in state law, then we're not forbidden from including it in our local ordinance because of the way it's written. It says uh, uh, protected classification or prohibits discrimination on a basis not contained in state law. Well, there's an anti-bullying statute in Arkansas that mentions sexual orientation and gender identity. And there are a few other places where it's mentioned, but not, nowhere that it's so clear in the exact terminology. Uh, but that's there, and, and so they argued uh, this is a basis contained in state law, and therefore we can add it to our local ordinance. And they managed to persuade uh, the trial judge in this case, uh, who is uh, Circuit Court Judge Doug Martin, who I believe had something to do with marriage equality in Arkansas, too, because <laughs> I think the Ar marriage equality case was also filed in the state it's court. It's a small world in Arkansas. Yeah, everyone knows everybody. <laughs> But not in the biblical sense, I guess. <laughs> uh, so at any rate, so Ju Judge Martin bought that argument, and he said the ordinance is okay. And he rejected Protect Fayetteville's uh, request for an injunction to uh, strike it down. And they filed an appeal in the state Supreme Court. Now, the other argument that the city came up with, just in case the statutory interpretation argument didn't work, was the Romer versus Evans argument that, in fact, the statute was specifically adopted by the legislature to fence out gay and transgender people from being able to get protection from discrimination. And thus, it was an equal protection violation under the 14th Amendment. A little bit of a hard argument to make because, on its face, the statute doesn't refer to sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, but it's clear from the legislative history that's what they were concerned about. It wasn't like somebody was out to add some other category that wasn't covered by the state's anti-discrimination law to the Fayetteville ordinance or, or to other local ordinances, although there are other categories that aren't covered by state law that you might want to add, like mm -hmm. marital status, for example, which is included in many state anti-discrimination laws. Uh, veteran status mm -hmm. is another one. Uh, so 
there's this constitutional argument, and, and Judge Martin didn't have to reach it because he struck down uh, the application of the statute to the ordinance uh, based on the finding uh, about the bullying ordinance and a few other uh, uh, statutes. Uh, so this goes up to the uh, Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court reverses unanimously. They said, look at the legislative history of Act 137. It's very clear that what the legislature wants is uniformity. They don't want any municipality in the state to ban discrimination on a basis that's not banned in state law and the kind of discrimination at issue, not bullying, employment, housing, public accommodations. They want the law to be uniform as to that. And therefore, it is an incorrect interpretation of Act 137 to say, if you can find sexual orientation or gender identity mentioned anywhere else in state law, we can do it in our local ordinance. Uh, so they reversed on that basis. And the city attorney promptly said, okay, we're going to go back to Judge Martin and we're going to make our constitutional argument. Because the Supreme Court said, the, well, the city has raised this constitutional argument, but it wasn't ruled on below. So it's not properly before us. Uh, so uh, this case will proceed on the constitutional argument. But in other Arkansas Supreme Court news, there's now been a cert petition filed in their recent uh, interpretation yeah, the of the birth certificate case. statute. Right. Uh, so there's a cert petition pending before the Supreme Court on whether the state of or Arkansas, in order to comply with the Obergefell decision, must apply the parental presumption to the same-sex spouse of a woman who gives birth in the state. They, yeah. they refused to in a decision that I believe we discussed last month. Yes. All right, so uh, a cert petition is on file there. Uh, interestingly, a similar case uh, was launched in South Carolina but promptly settled by the state, yeah. which agreed that they will apply the parental presumption henceforth. And there was – I don't know if you saw – They've been to the some argument, But the, there was the argument yesterday in the big Texas case ah. uh, was yesterday. Yes. And uh, another case we, we mentioned last month. Right, the Texas Supreme Court deciding whether the city of Houston has to treat married same-sex couples the same as different sex. I mean the city wants to extend benefits. It's, it's a taxpayer it's, lawsuit. Right, well, it's a taxpayer lawsuit. A religiously motivated taxpayer <laughs> who was being egged on by the governor and the attorney general and the, the uh, lieutenant governor, they were all piling on. In fact, the Supreme Court had refused to review that case originally when the trial judge had rejected it. And uh, the, uh, the governor and the attorney general pushed the court to reconsider, and so they reconsidered. Yeah. Um, so a lot to, to pay attention to. Uh, we'll take another – uh, short break, our last short break, and when we return for our of note segment, we'll discuss the latest in a man's attempt to fight back against a scary situation created by an ex of his and Grinder. We are back to wrap up with our of note segment for this episode. An ex of a man has allegedly set up fake profiles on Grinder sending hundreds of men to his ex's doorstep. That man then sued Grinder under various theories after they refused to put a stop to this. Why did a New York federal court find Grinder was probably immune from liability, though, Art? Well, it's because of the Communications Decency Act that uh, Congress passed back in the 20th century, you know, in the early days of the Internet. Uh, the feeling was that Internet service providers should not be held liable if they're just creating a platform where third parties can post stuff. 
Uh, and uh, this has been raised in, in many different uh, settings now when people who claim that uh, there's injury to them either economically, physically, their reputation uh, because of something someone posted online, uh, and then they sue the Internet service provider. And the federal courts have been pretty staunch about this. I mean, I, I really feel for Matthew Herrick, the plaintiff in this case, he uh, he his allegation is that he signed up for Grindr based on their advertising about what a safe environment they had created for gay men to connect online. So he signs up on Grindr, and several years later he meets this guy, and they have an affair, which lasts for a little while, and then they split up, and the guy evidently was unhappy. And so he allegedly started setting up all of these fake profiles on Grindr for Mr. Herrick, uh, which uh, said that he was into fetishistic sex, bondage, role play, and rape fantasies, and encouraged potential, uh, potential suitors to go to his home or workplace for sex, including his contact information, including the addresses of his job and his home. And he said... Literally, he, he estimated approximately 400 people have responded. That sounds a bit exaggerated to me, but the court said, you know, dozens and dozens of people yeah. showed up either at his workplace or at his home, all raring to go to help him play out his rape fantasy and, uh, and his bondage fantasies and whatever else. And he claims that not only he, but uh, friends, neighbors, and coworkers have all been harmed and been endangered by this. So he said he's contacted Grinder numerous times, he said over 50 times, but they have done nothing to take down these fake profiles. And he needs prospective relief as well against future fake profiles, not just the ones that were already put up. And uh, the day after he filed his complaint in state Supreme Court in Manhattan, he got a TRO from the state judge against Grinder. But uh, Grinder immediately removed the case to federal court claiming diversity. Uh, Grinder evidently is incorporated out of state. Uh, and uh, they moved to uh, dismiss this case on the ground that the Communications Decency Act absolutely protects them. And Judge Caproni said, it seems that they're right. Uh, this is distinguishable from the handful of cases where courts have found no protection. There's one we talked about, I believe, uh, a while back, the roommates.com case from out in California. Uh, roommates.com was eliciting from people who wanted to list their apartments for roommates uh, personal characteristics of them and of their desired roommate. And a uh, local community went after them under their housing discrimination law, saying that uh, allowing people to post that they, they prefer roommates of a particular race or particular sex or sexual orientation, whatever, uh, was discriminatory. And the federal court, this one went to the Ninth Circuit, the federal court said, well, roommates.com is specifically asking them to list this information, so they are complicit here. This isn't just providing a platform for people to post whatever they want to post. So they found that roommates.com could be sued and wasn't uh, protected. But in this case, uh, Grindr uh, doesn't do that. You know, people can put whatever they want to put. All right. Interesting case. Uh, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Lanos, please become a member of Legal or a Lanos subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future co- podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. 
Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow the gal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in April.